GM, GM, welcome back to another episode of Web3 Academy, where together we're exploring which Web3 business models and technologies are going to win. We're here to keep you on the forefront of Web3. I'm Jay Bird, and as always, joined by my co-host, Kyle Reedhead. What's up, Kai? What's up, guys? Today we have Matt from XMTP. You know, we have a lot of Web3 gigabrains on the show, and I think Matt is just an internet gigabrain. He's been in the internet world for a long time, and he's trying to do something real big here, which is disrupting or kind of changing how we communicate online, how we message each other, how we communicate with each other, and doing this by enabling interoperability amongst everything that we do. And this was a very, very eye-opening conversation. Really what he's trying to create here is a public good, something that applications in Web3 and honestly beyond Web3 can build on top of and utilize. And with that comes a lot of difficulties in how do you build a public good and a protocol? How do you monetize that? How do you make it sustainable? And so much more. And so we dive deep into all of these things. And I just think there's just so much to take away and so much to learn from this episode. The outcome of this, if Matt achieves his goal and the team at XMTP achieve their goal is we will have full ownership of our DMs and we will be able to transport them across any platform. So you won't get rugged by Instagram or Facebook as Kyle did years ago. (laughs) And you'll have full opportunity to control your words that you're using which is just a huge part of what we're building in Web3. So super excited for you guys to hear this episode with Matt. Matt is the co-founder at XMTP Labs. He's a serial entrepreneur. This is his fifth company. Let's just dive right into it, Kai. Yeah, I mean, more than control, I think what this really gives is the ability to communicate anywhere on the internet. Instead of it being segmented, sometimes on Instagram, sometimes on Twitter, and sometimes on Uber Eats or wherever, everything's all in one spot. And it's just interoperable across every application. And that, to me, is... A little bit mind-blowing. So let's dive into it, but before we do, let's take a quick second to hear from our sponsors. The future of social media is here, and that future lives in Web3 on top of Lens Protocol. Web2 social platforms are broken and ripe for disruption. You see, the epicenter of social media is the creators, and yet they are the most neglected. Web2 platforms like Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram are all essentially robbing creators of their worth. Creators are a new type of entrepreneur, forming new types of businesses. Yet with Web2 platforms, creators don't own their content or their profiles, and that's their product and business. Instead, they are tied to the platforms they choose to create on. Well, just like how crypto is freeing us from banks, Web3 is freeing us from these centralized platforms. On Lens Protocol, creators own their content, own their profile, and even their social graph and followers in the form of NFTs. This allows you to move freely from one social application to another with your content, profile, and followers moving along with you. Lens Protocol enables self-sovereignty for your social graph and interoperability across the internet. At Web3 Academy, we believe this is the future of social, and that's why we've partnered with Lens, to ensure that the path of social media is heading in the right direction. Visit lens.xyz to learn more today. Are you building a community around your brand? Well, listen to this. At Web3 Academy, our motto is community first, profit second. Why? Because engaged communities tell you exactly how to improve your product and ultimately drive growth. They act as team members, recruiting new customers and providing crucial feedback. And they become brand super fans, sticking by you through thick and thin. But to engage your community, 
you must first understand them. That's where Chasm comes in. Chasm is our go-to Web3 tool for managing and understanding our community members. It combines both on-chain and Web2 metrics all in one user-friendly dashboard. With Chasm, you'll know things like which other communities your members are part of and which of your campaigns are truly driving results. That's why at Web3 Academy, we use Chasm to launch campaigns, optimize growth, engage our community members, and automate workflows with this all-in-one tool. If your community is already on chain, get to know them better with Chasm. Head to chasm.xyz using the link in the description and discover why top brands like Immutable, Nifty Labs, and Collab Land are using Chasm. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. We're really excited to have you today for so many reasons, mainly because Kyle and I have been talking about the struggles within Web3 and the lack of ability to do wallet-to-wallet messaging. Mm. And that is, I think, a massive hurdle that will improve the space. But before we jump into everything wallet-to-wallet messaging and XMTP, let's just start with your rabbit hole story you were telling us a little bit about before we hit record. How did you first get into Web3? So crypto being the term we use before Web3 and blockchain and all that before that. But I was introduced to Bitcoin just through news stories early on. And there was a few enthusiasts that I happened to know and got excited about it. And one of which left his job in the White House to go work at MIT and teach about Bitcoin. And that was the first okay, I need to take this more seriously than I have been kind of moment. But in 2017, in hearing through a bunch of other folks that were getting into it, that I should pay a bit more attention, went and read the Ethereum white paper and was just thoroughly intrigued by this idea that you could have this trustless, permissionless change of value and that it could be programmable. That was kind of just mind blowing. And it was this idea that we we're on the precipice of having new primitives to build from in technology, which doesn't feel like happens all that often. Almost if you think of like mobile the decade prior, that mm-hmm. that was its own new primitive or advancements in JavaScript, which got us web apps, that was an advancement. But this one felt very transformative. And I hate to say it, but like, then I saw crypto kitties. And it was like, <laughs> it's the future of everything is like, I don't care how ridiculous it seems right now, crypto kitties, crypto punks, but like, the idea of a program being created that could define scarcity and that I could own these things and nobody else could claim to them and all this it just absolutely floored me. And what could be possible for the future. I wrote some, I don't know, 10 tweet tweet storm in 2017. You guys have to see this. This is amazing. And it can do all these incredible things. But then obviously nothing happened in NFTs for years, really until 2021. <laughs> and so got really excited really early on, you know, went and felt so compelled by it that I wanted to go and start a company around it just to be closer to it, you know, get closer to the metal, you know, learn from it, which is what I did. And then bear market hit, and that's a whole different kind of lesson. So that company didn't continue on, got acquired by Kraken, but we just learning so much. Like I've just been voraciously consuming this space since that first day. So it's an exciting space to work in. Now you've been tinkering around with the internet for a long time, have you not? I think you said something about you were the 607th person on Twitter. Is that true? And tell us that story a little bit. Well, the idea is 607. I think the actual number of how many people were on there at the time was like less than 140. Like this guy, Sean Bonner, who was in that early cohort, I think went back and figured all that out. (laughs) Yeah, that was 
crazy. I actually was like podcasting back in 2005. And the precursor to Twitter was actually was like a podcast tool slash marketplace called Odeo. And the founders, Noah Glass and Ed Williams and Biz Stone, they were all building this podcast tool. So I was super into Odeo. I would had my podcast published on there, all this stuff. And then I go to the first podcast convention and met some of these folks and was just kind of enamored by this. But it's weird because a lot of the earliest folks on Twitter were people from the early podcast crew. And that's just because we were, you know, hanging around on the internet with these characters that went and built Twitter. And so one of my fellow podcasters, this guy, Derek, is still a good friend of mine to today was like, hey, I want to invite you to this thing. It's called TWTTR and you text it to 40404. And I was like, okay, I don't even think I sent my first real tweet till November, but we're talking, this was 2006. So it was a long time ago. But yeah, I've been on Twitter for a long time. It's still this love it or have it beloved piece of my life that I can attribute so many things to. Before we jump into Web3 communication and messaging and XMTP and set some context there. I've just got to ask more of a personal question is you mentioned that you came from a small town in the middle yeah. of America. How does a, a guy who comes from a small town in the middle of America with you know farming background in your family grew up to be so into tech and take this path with your career of tech? Was it something that was in you from a young age? Like, where did that come from? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, Tinkerer for sure, always loved to build with my Legos. So I guess there was like some, you know, building in there from an early age, but I didn't really have, say, access to computers super early on. We got our first computer that we owned, like when I was in high school, which was awesome. And, you know, we set up an internet connection, and all that stuff. But really, it was like when we got cable internet, which I think might have been my junior year or senior year, something like that of high school, where it all started to unlock quite a bit more. I was self-taught in, you know, Photoshop and web design and those kinds of things. And, but it was getting out there into these online communities and understanding that the scope of the world is so much bigger. I think when you grow up in a big city around a lot of people, you can see possibility everywhere because there's just so many diverse and varied experiences that everybody has. But, you know, when it's a small town, thousand people in my case, like Chicago was a close city by comparison, like two and a half hours. But I think I'd been there two or three times the entire time mm -hmm. that I grew up. And so you're just not exposed to those things. So it was the internet that really exposed me to the world of possibility and entrepreneurship and meeting these people that all of a sudden I felt like I found my people. They think like me and here are all these wonderful things that you can do. And Web 2.0 was just so creative and the sort of fun that everybody was having with it was absolutely electrifying. And so it made sense to get into podcasting early to just try some things out and do some design. And, you know, getting my first company off the ground was all because of that. It was just, hey, maybe there's something that I could go do in this space. Got to attribute it to just the fact that the internet was a magical place back then to connect with people in any kind of walk of life or community. Mm -hmm. So cool. I'm currently reading the book, How the Internet Happened, just kind of like doing some fun research on just like the stories of the internet from the early days. And the one theme that I continue to see is that the main reason that people onboarded in masses onto the internet was one, to consume. They wanted to consume mm. more content, which we're already doing through TV and radio, but now they can consume in a different way. But two, the main driver was to communicate. 
they could communicate with others around the world for the first time. Yeah. And so there was so many communication in forums and different platforms where you could just talk to someone. And it was like communities came and just everyone was talking to other people from around the world. So it was very interesting. And communication still today is one of the biggest, you know, features of the internet. We have tons of ways to communicate. And obviously that's the reason we have you on the podcast today is to talk about XMTP, which is a new form or a new technology to communicate on the internet. And before we get into that, I just want to set some context and maybe try to understand your thinking through this. But when I think about the way we communicate on the internet right now, there's a couple different layers. There's the mobile layer of communication, right? So if you have a phone, you can SMS and you can do iMessage if you have iPhones and you communicate that way. And that's kind of for like your maybe closer friends slash family. You have their phone number and you communicate that way. Then we have sort of like the app layer of communication, which is like, Instagram DMs is, I don't know, for me anyway, is a very common area that I communicate with other people around the world. And it's kind of a social form of communication where the things you're doing every day, your stories, your posts, it sort of like ignites conversation. And so now I communicate with people, you know, that are less close to me, right? I don't even have their number, but I'm still communicating with them in the DMs there. And then you have things like WhatsApp and stuff where maybe it's more for group chats or for businesses, et cetera. Why do we need another form of communication. What was your thought process on that? The existing ones that we have, what do they have wrong? What are their limitations? I'm just curious if you could set some context in the way that you think of communicating online. Well, exactly the reason that you listed off however many options were there to pick from to communicate on is one of the core motivations for building XMTP. It's the idea Mm -hmm. that when we are communicating online, we are entering a specific space, like we're going into iMessage. And the people that I can communicate there is just that specific set of users. And let's just say my neighbor that moved into the neighborhood who only uses WhatsApp primarily. Now I have to go off and pick an entirely different communication medium to communicate with them. And then as you describe, like I'm communicating with these online communities and I'm using Telegram and Discord and Signal and all of these other solutions. It's that my online communication is just an absolute spiderweb of all of these different things. Mm-hmm. And going further, I don't own any of it. I am not ultimately in control of those accounts in, say, the way that we are in control of our Ethereum accounts. It's the idea that, you know what, I want to move from one app to another. I don't have that ability to do so. And then, you know, taking it a step further as a builder, there are all these things looking back to Web 2.0 that we can just take for granted. You could totally take for granted that you would have some social login that would come with it, maybe a social graph, maybe some ability to re-engage with the person that is logging into your website. And none of those things are affordances that we have in Web 3. Like when you click connect my wallet, all that exists in that connection is just my history of transactions and the ability to do another one. You know, maybe there's some additional data that's out there. But if you're building something that I could be benefited by having attention brought back to you, it doesn't really exist in a meaningful capacity right now. And so all these things boil down. It's like, hey, we just believed that people should be able to own and control their communications. They should be able to pick, you know, which app they want to use for their communication and messaging. But that doesn't mean that you're then pigeonholing into a specific set of communications, but that the opportunity is there to kind of build on one big substrate for those communications to be, you know, encrypted and, and private. And 
all done in a way where no one company controls, say, enough of that experience where, you know, they can make some sort of unilateral decisions and change the way it all happens. So those properties, you know, you might find individual parts of those properties in different apps and protocols and stuff that exist on the internet today. But as a comprehensive one, it didn't exist. And so that's been our mission since day one, unchanged. And we continue to build it out with that premise. To paint a picture there, for those that currently use a phone or the internet, uh, we (laughs) communicate on many, many different channels. And I think that this can get confusing. I mean, there's so many times where I'm talking to someone on like, let's say Instagram, and then I'm like, but I'm also talking to them over on iMessage and like maybe also on WhatsApp. And I'm just like, what are we doing here? Let's let's just consolidate and move our conversations <laughs> to one spot, you know? And like you said, for the last four years, I've been living overseas a lot in Latin America and they use WhatsApp predominantly. When I came back to mm. Canada, I was fed up. I was like, why are we all using iMessage? I'm like so annoyed. WhatsApp is so much better. I had this like weird transition of trying to go back to iMessage. Now I'm back there because I've been in Canada for a while. So You're saying a big problem here is like, one, we just have so many means of communication when we could just do it all in one spot. There just would be different user interfaces for them, right? And you can kind of pick and choose your own, but regardless, they all work. Interoperability, something we always talk about in Web3. And then I guess the other big part of it, when you say like own your communications is if a platform goes away, which I mean has happened, you still can chat with the people, right? That you have on that platform. If Twitter just leaves one day, you can still talk to all the people that you have on Twitter just not through that interface. You'd have to do it through another interface, but at least your conversations are still there. The connection with those people are still there. And so those are kind of the two big things that I think you're trying to fix with XMTP. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, that's really it. And if they decide to do something with that experience that is just Mm -hmm. different than what you showed up for, you know, you (laughs) think about how we're not exactly talking about communication specifically, but like Instagram, how it started, what it was, in those first few years was just photo sharing, right? Mm -hmm. And what it has turned into is something totally different. And so my choice is then to either say, abide by those changes and continue using it in a totally different way, or just, I've got to go find something else, but I can't Mm -hmm. bring anything that I've done with me. So communication, messaging is such a basic thing that we do that to feel like we have to be beholden to how a specific app wants to do something feels kind of antiquated in this day and age. The other form of communication I didn't mention on the internet that is also very popular that we all use is email. And what you're talking about sounds very similar to email. And I guess we'll get into what exactly XMTP is in a second, but in terms of features or limitations or whatever, like to solve all the problems you're saying, why don't we just use email? Email is amazing. It is amazing as a protocol, SMTP and all that has really stood the test of time and it has persisted as a primary way for a lot of communication to happen. But there's a couple of challenges and they're all commingled. One is that it is absolute controlled by spam. So Mm. you have spam that probably accounts for, I don't have the exact figures, but it's north of 90% of all email sent is spam. As a consumer, if I'm using an inbox, the amount of tooling and work that I have to do to stay sane with an inbox and all that is crazy. So then that actually generated the second problem, which is that in the beginning of email, you had a whole lot more mail servers. You could run your own mail server. You could, you know, send mail explicitly from that one. You know, you might have a a buddy who's got a mail server and you're going to route messages all through. It was kind of really interesting how decentralized it was. 
But over time, as this spam problem became worse, certain parties, you know, Google, Yahoo, Microsoft via Hotmail, and a handful of these others got really good at managing spam and adding all of these new features like calendar invites and all this stuff. And so inevitably what happens is you create these power brokers who have a bit more power in the system because their experience is a bit better. And we start to coalesce around those handful of providers. Well, by now, they've created a situation where if you want to send mail, you have to make sure that it can get through Gmail's spam filter and Microsoft's filters and all those things. And the best way to do that is to use those servers. And so we've found ourselves back at this place where a wonderfully decentralized protocol and communication medium has centralized around a handful of providers. And that's it. And coming into things with eyes wide open and saying, that is not a future that feels like one that I want to be a part of, we've got to find a different path. Right. I, I guess to add to that too, technically, if you have a Gmail or a Hotmail account, you don't own that account and you don't own your messages because Gmail owns that. Now you can upgrade to get a pro, I don't know what they call it, but whatever the like higher tier version is of your Gmail account and you can like actually own your domain. But for the most part, most people are just using a gmail.com handle and yeah. you don't actually own that. So you, you actually do still go back to the same problem as before. Myself included. That's so funny. Okay, well, talk us through the idea of XMTP and feel free to go as technical as you feel you need. Our audiences, mm. some of them are technical, some of them are developers, but I think a lot of them are more entrepreneurs and those building businesses and creators. So using Web3 for different reasons. So Feel free to go as deep as you need to help us understand kind of what you're building here. I got to start this with using SMTP as our segue here. Mm. What's the story of the name? The name in coming up with the solution and the thing that felt like it should do, branding is something I love. I love branding exercises. And the one thing that I wanted to, you know, sort of convey with XMTP was familiarity. If you knew the word SMTP, but then you put Web3 against it or crypto or whatever, that maybe you could vaguely figure out what this thing should be doing or might do. You've never seen this before. You don't know what it is, but like, do I think that it could be something about messaging or mail or whatnot? Probably, you know, so just however you could have that nostalgia play in was the goal. And I would say that it was some massive exercise in branding that took months to get to this point and all that, but all that would be BS. I literally <laughs> looked at what are the primitives here? Well, it's okay, mail and decentralization, but also there was another protocol years prior that was branded Jabber, but the protocol's name was XMPP. And I was like, what if I just put them together and I took the X <laughs> from this one and I stuck it on the MTP on this one and then came up with the extensible message transport protocol and it all made sense, right? It all came together. And so that's it. Can you also <laughs> it, share what it, SMTP stands for, for those who don't know? Simple mail transfer protocol. Yes. Okay. And, it, and the other one was the extensible message and presence protocol, which was, mm. was a little bit different. But these protocols were incredible inspiration. Like I can look at them and say, there is so much good work, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants kind of thing. So being able to take that just long history and try to understand it, what things worked well, what things could be improved upon, that was a critical part of the path of building this thing out. So what is XMTP? Essentially, it is a protocol where encrypted communications can happen between, say, different accounts. Those accounts right now are 
Web3 account. So I join and I sign in with my Ethereum account, for example, that has that address that we see, the 0x, all of that. And it's the idea that I could put in another address, say my colleague, like the his ENS name even, shanemac.eth, and send them a message and expect that that message would be encrypted so that no external party beyond he or I would be able to read that communication and that it would get to its destination, that somehow Shane would be able to read that message. In that simplicity, there's a lot that kind of expands from there, which is, well, where does this happen? You know, how do you Mm -hmm. actually send this message or things like that? And we decided early on that for this space to thrive, communication has to be woven into all aspects of how it works. If you think about your phone today and how much we take for granted push notifications, and then we can Mm -hmm. remember that there was a time before push notifications on our phone, it's crazy, right? But that is like when you think about when I go to use some DAP for the first time. Let's say it's some like Ave or whatnot. Let's say there's some critical information that Ave needs to get to me. I don't care if it's a claim of an airdrop. I don't care if it's a, hey, you're about to get liquidated. There's information that needs to come to me and it's not native to this experience. And so what we wanted to do was provide the rails that developers, whether they're building some DAP online or a mobile application or whatnot, could add communication to their experience, email, text messaging, push notifications, anything that you could kind of value of words between Mm -hmm. parties, that that be able to happen just as easily as adding any other package to your app or whatnot. And so if I go to let's say, an NFT marketplace and sign in that I might be able to send messages through that interface. But the sort of key thing is that unlike the Web2 experiences and apps of the past where those communications are siloed to only that experience, you're now sending and receiving messages as a part of this like sort of universal inbox that now gets to travel with you from app to app. So if I then send a message to Shane and I'm sitting on, you know, an NFT marketplace, but he happens to be, say, just using a wallet or some other app that he still gets the message that it doesn't matter what interface we're coming in to or out of that these messages just flow. And so it has to be so simple. Like we do one thing. It's just there to send a message. There's nothing else that is crazy about this thing, but we wanted to make it so dang simple for a user to get on board with use that it just makes sense and for developers to integrate because that's how this works like this whole spacious coordination all the way down right and so how do we help users by just making it so easy to get messaging into any product possible and then how do we help developers by making sure that those users re-engage and all of that kind of stuff so That's a very simplistic way of looking at all this, but that's the gist. If you were using, I don't know, Uber Eats, yet you were on YouTube or on Instagram and you were also trying to rent out your place on Airbnb and, you know, you were doing all these different things and you get messages on all these different apps instead of me having to open up an app, go see if I have any messages there or maybe I have notifications on and I can see it. I just remember to go look. I can access all of these communications in any of those single apps, right? 
because they are all built on top. I mean, not these ones, of course, but <laughs> Web3 ones, or eventually maybe these, because they're all built on top of the same protocol. And so regardless of what app you're in, what you're doing on the internet, you can communicate with anyone and everyone, and they can communicate with you, even if they're not in the same app as you. That's the idea here? That's right. And in each one of these experiences, they can be filtered down. If you start from a base level protocol of very open, very extensible, any kind of message payload can come into this thing. Front ends can make choices that would be best for their experience and best for their users and say, maybe we only show messages from this one experience. And maybe that particular experience is siloed for that interface. But what's neat about that is even though it's siloed for that interface and focused on only that use case, if the messages are sent over XMTP, if I use another mobile app, all of those messages that would be siloed, I still have access to. So it's giving that ownership and control out to the user. It's pushing those mm -hmm. messages out so that I get to kind of take them where I want to. Right. And so in order for this to work, you need applications to build on top of your protocol, to build those front ends, to build the ability to actually go and send the message and read the message kind of thing, right? You're building the underlying infrastructure of that whole thing. Maybe you can explain a little bit about how this works. And again, try not to go too technical here. Is this using the blockchain? Is this some other type of protocol you've made? Like, how does this actually work? And then I guess the other question I want to get to in terms of understanding how it works is, if this was made in a centralized manner, so not as a protocol, and you had people build on top of it, you could just rug them and you could turn the protocol off, you yeah. can do whatever you want, right? And so when you're trying to create a protocol, where you need applications to build on top of, especially in the Web3 space, we want to make sure we're building on top of things where it's basically not possible to rug us. This is why mm -hmm. we love yep. Ethereum, right? Versus like BNB or something like that. And so just curious, as you talk about this sort of protocol, how is it not ruggable, I guess, is the word that I want to use here, so that others will want to actually build on it long-term? Wow, there's a lot to unpack here. So, <laughs> not so ruggable is the new one. term for decentralization. Not ruggable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like censorship resistant. It's like rug resistant. Protocol yeah, yeah. is rug resistant. So that's a super good question. And in that case, let's kind of break down, you know, what matters most. Could I rug you and read everything that you've sent so far? No not possible, right? So we, everything is end and encrypted. You are the one that has the access to the keys at the end of the day, unless you hand those keys over to somebody else, plain text for them to read as a third party observer within the protocol. I can't see what messages you're sending. That's definitely valuable. The second is maybe there's a way to have a rug that isn't even about the underlying content, but the content and metadata that could be implied by the things that are going on. And so, you know, as you're communicating with other people, let's be real about so many of these other communication mediums, they have monetized on metadata and who is talking to who and all kinds of other things. And the goal that we have is to have as little metadata as possible about anything that's going on in the network. We launched V2 of the protocol not a few months ago where the explicit goal was to have less metadata built into the system. And so we, as a third-party observer, can't tell who's talking to who anymore. You can tell things are happening and, and that's about it. But you can't know, hey, Alice is talking to Bob in all of these places. And so not being able to sort of rug you financially or exploit you in those ways, that's another big important principle. The other is that the protocol itself be permissionless. Let's say an app 
rugs you. Mm-hmm. They're like, ah, you know, we're going to totally change the way that messaging works or whatever, or maybe even take that feature out of the app. They can rub you. The app can rub you. The interface can take that away from you. But the protocol didn't. And so you could literally write your own client and tap back in and get back to all your communications. And that's what matters, right? So that's already true today. Like the amount of XMTP clients is in the hundreds and not in the dozens or even one where you really have you know, real diversity in that respect. And the last is in, say, how the messages are transported. And right now, we're in this big sprint to get other providers up and online so that XMTP Labs, the company, is not the one that has to be running the resources. This is kind of the ultimate in centralization is when you have, say, one party that's running all the servers. Mm -hmm. It's an explicit goal that we move away from that. We don't want that to be the case. We haven't wanted that to be the case. But there are certain challenges that come with building this particular kind of network. And one of which is if you want it to be permissionless, then somebody somewhere is going to come in with malicious intent. And so, you know, just open sourcing everything and saying, okay, free for all, everybody. We care so much about this. We say that what we're trying to contribute is a public good for the world. And one of the things that is a core tenant of being a public good is that it is non-rivalrous, meaning that my be in the network, doesn't matter if I'm a good guy, bad guy, whatever, doesn't somehow impede or impact somebody else's experience somewhere else. Well, if you have a malicious actor that jumps into the network and just starts spamming everybody, then they all have a bad experience. And so we know that there is a path to this point where it's no longer dependent on any one company, but that we're also not immediately opening up the experience to just, you know, truly terrible user experiences and things like that. So there's this definitely like a path, like a delicate dance and a balance that we've got to work our way through. But we have an entire group dedicated to that within the company. We have wonderful advisors around all this stuff. And it is a thing that keeps us up at night to make sure that we are, you know, constantly marching down that path because we don't want that responsibility. And by the way, I don't think that the developers building on this, whom we are talking to all day, every day, would at all be interested in putting all those eggs back in one basket. So to have that progressive decentralization be a core part of our ethos has been very important. Great explanation, by the way. But so you said right now the protocol, I guess, runs on specifically on your servers. The goal is to make more companies or people or whatever run it on their servers as well. So it becomes like more decentralized. That's right. What is the like incentive model for others to come in and want to run a server or whatever it is that they need to do to help you decentralize this protocol? Is it like the clients themselves who are like, well, if I'm going to build on this thing, let's make sure this thing is as decentralized as possible. And so I'm also going to run a server. Or is there like a incentive model? Maybe there's a token, I don't know, but I'm just curious like what that model is to get to decentralization and why people would actually do it. Well, I appreciate the lead in because you set up two core categories that we think (laughs) about and I didn't even give you that. The two core categories for that incentivization is intrinsic and extrinsic. It's like, am I intrinsically motivated? Meaning that there's just a reason that I want this network to exist and therefore whatever it's going to cost, I'm going to, you know, bear the cost of to ensure that it exists. You know, we definitely believe that that's a type of motivation that will exist in this network, meaning that 
let's say I am a NFT marketplace. And part of that core experience is messaging and enabling people to you know, negotiate trades. So because of that, hey, I want to make sure that those users have a high quality of service and would be willing to, say, run some of the infrastructure to make sure that happens, run the servers, run the nodes. And maybe that doesn't even, say, have like a break-even point. Well, that's okay because all of the rest of the ways that as a business, I'm able to sustain kind of all, you know, play a part in that equation as well. And so, you know, having that intrinsic motivation is important because it sets up a sort of different needs and wants in the ecosystem that aren't purely economically driven, which can have its own issues. Hey, if all of a sudden, you know, Bitcoin's hash rate drops below a certain point, that there's just wholesale servers that are getting shut down. And that's true free market, you know, through and through. But when you're doing something like relying on, you know, communications, it's kind of important that you have maybe other motivations at play. So hmm. uh, that's definitely something that is important to us. Now, the extrinsic motivations, the sort of token driven motivations, all those things, that's something we are also constantly working on too. And something that at the very least, ensuring nodes that are providing services to the network, moving messages, storing messages, things like that, that they are rewarded for doing so. Not unlike how Ethereum has their block reward where... Hmm you're performing validation services and you're going to get rewarded for doing so. The same kind of principle applies. And also, you know, if you are doing things that are negative to the network, let's just say that you are claiming that you're storing messages, but it turns out you're not like knowing that you would have some penalty, some real, you know, skin in the game to ensure that at the end of the day, users that are participating in this network are going to get what they think exists, which is the ability to communicate. And so there's all kinds of ways that we could head down a conversation about that, all the levers that you could pull and things like that. But at the end of the day, it's about, okay, so long as there is a means by which the network is paying out to those validators, those nodes, whatnot, and there's a way to disincentivize them from bad activity, that's important. The only other thing that I'll add in here is that Having economic components be a core part of a communication protocol has its benefits in controlling for those spam scenarios, too, because, <laughs> you know, this is definitely going to be a big and challenging part of what our path is. And I'm excited about that. I'm excited to kind of bring in the community and have lots of discourse around this particular subject, because at its core, I care that as an individual that I might have free access to some a level of, of use, you know, and if you think about it, like email, well, Gmail is using my ads to monetize against me. But at the end of the day, I still get some free use out of that. I don't have that same kind of interest in this case. It's like, could it be possible that the protocol could allow for some amount of personal use? Well, then at some point, you clear business use cases, or, or you could even lop in, you know, spam into that you just have people that are sending lots of messages. And maybe there's a reason to send those messages from one identity. In Web3 and in crypto, you have this particular concern and attack vector called a Sybil attack, which is like to fraudulently generate lots of identities to try and game some sort of system. It could be for token rewards. It could be anything. But you can imagine, hey, if I could just spin up a new identity for every message I want to send, then maybe I never run into certain limits and things like that. But if built into the protocol is some means of 
I don't know if it's reputation. I don't know if it's just having a long-lived relationship with an individual user. There's probably a reason you might want to maintain a particular identity over time. And that might mean that if that identity then wants to go and send a million messages, that's fine. But there has to be some sort of payment that comes along with it. And in all of that's case, it just means that business users may have a certain amount of cost associated with doing business on here. Maybe there's a payment for long-term storage or my archives or some sort of priority. But at the end of the day, all of these are little dials that can be tweaked. We know that, hey, if we can dial up the cost that it might reduce on spam, but it might also harm the user experience. So we don't claim to know any of how these things are going to work out at the far, far end of the day. Neither did Vitalik when they got Ethereum started, but we're going to give it our best shot and we're going to listen to the community and we're going to bring in a lot of different perspectives. We're going to figure out how to make it work. So it sounds like, I mean, one, there's this sort of intrinsic value to do this, which of course, especially in Web3, we need a communication layer and we don't have it. So I think you definitely have that intrinsic layer you're talking about. And then the extrinsic side is to be determined. Sounds like you will use some sort of Web3 substrate at some point, and that will facilitate you know, revenues and potentially fees, et cetera. And you'll figure that out once this thing actually has the traction where it actually needs to be figured out. From what I'm seeing, there's over 180 apps that are already building on top of XMTP, which is pretty incredible. And I'm just curious, how did that happen? And like, <laughs> like, what's your strategy there? Web3 just needs communication. So is this all out of necessity? What's your sort of play on that? Web3 does need communication. So I think there's just this general interest that has people looking for solutions. And when they come to XMTP.org and they see you know, just how documentation is a product for us. It's like, we need to have mm -hmm. the best documentation available. We need to have great examples available so that a developer can just jump in and get started. When we hear stories of developers getting in there and in 15 minutes sending their first messages with their applications, that's incredible. And that's everything that we want to be able to support. And so having that experience be just as dialed in as possible is critical to our growth. And so part of that would be like, hey, we go to every hackathon that we think would be valuable to participate in because it's a wonderful opportunity to interact in real time with lots of developers. Having those boots on the ground, going in there and seeing these are the challenges that people are experiencing. These are the features they're gravitating towards. These are the ones where once you tell them, then they get excited about it. But, oh, that means we probably need to do a better job at educating around that. There's so much to be learned from there. And then it's this amazing long tail of developers where maybe that's not their full-time job. Maybe they're coming in to hack on this fun project because it's a bit of a vacation for them. But then they're going to go back home to you know their job where they're working at a big Web3 project and might take that to the rest of the organization and say, hey, I hacked with this thing. It was super cool. Let's maybe try it out for these other use cases. So making sure that we are there and you know working with developers on a regular basis is important. Then you have these examples where we have this wonderful investor base that we brought on extremely intentionally because you could have the best technology in the world. You could have the best protocol in the world. But if you do not have the network to back it up, then what is it worth, right? So realizing that communication is just as much, if not more, about network effects as it is technology mm -hmm. meant mm -hmm. that having all of the right people on board that would be 
leaders in their respective communities, leaders in their protocols, or be able to help bring this protocol and this message out to those communities is incredibly important. And so when through the grapevine, we hear that Lens is interested in bringing DMs into their Web3 experience, that's a very easy conversation to facilitate because we can go to the folks that are building on and with Lens and say, hey, we might have this capability for you. And here are our principles and here are the things that we care about. And, you know, as an example, that one did work out exactly like that. And so then Lens Protocol last year implemented XMTP as its secure DM layer. And this is kind of where that last part of it kicks in, which is so much of what we talk about in Web 2 was this like Metcalf's law. It's like the idea mm-hmm. that in a network, the use of it is or the value of it is proportional to the number of connected users. Well, that's true. And in the case of Ethereum, obviously, its longevity and some of these other networks is based largely off of just general usage. But in communication, it's a little bit different because what you're trying to avoid is what's called interaction failure. It's that if I try to send someone a message and there's no one else on the other end, then not only does that you know suck that I didn't get my message out there, but it also means that I might be less interested in sending more messages through that vector, through that path in the future. And it can be a compounding negative effect as opposed to just, oh, I didn't get my message out. So Lens is a great example of this effect that is called Reed's Law, which is, okay, proportional total number of connected, whatever, all that's great. But within that broader network, there are subnetworks that exist. That if you were to kind of dial in on certain subnetworks, then maybe the users of those subnetworks would have influence in other places and you can kind of build from there. And so we have seen where Lens Protocol is its kind of own little ecosystem that has then started to draw in and create this gravity for usage of XMTP and where Lens DMs initially launched as just. Lenster, one of the clients that is built with Lens, having DM capability, you know, just last week we saw Orb launch with their, you know, DM layer. And we've seen DMs launch on other Lens apps and we know there are more coming. And that's incredible because now it means that within that network, there is a sort of mass effect. There's a gravity to the use of the network in there. And then we just find the next one, Uh, Mm -hmm. right? That's where the human element of this comes in. It's like, that's where we have to do a lot of groundwork and try to learn where the patterns are coming from. And by patterns, I mean, just like what people are talking about and what interesting use cases are emerging so that we can make sure that XMTP can satisfy those use cases and we can build inside of those communities as well. So it's a lot of work, uh, but it's worth doing. (laughs) And what this leads to is this exponential growth that we're all experiencing within Web3 right now and why I think we believe that we're going to be at a billion wallets within the next decade. Or for example, what you mentioned, I think it was just last week launched DMs using XMTP. And the next app that's on Lens that wants to use XMTP and bring in DMs, probably easier each time. They don't need to hire developers to go build their own internal DM capabilities, which could take months, even years. They can 
spin it up real quick. No, it's just, hey, here it is. It works there, <laughs> it yeah, works. it works here. Yeah. yeah. And having that credibility is pretty huge that, hey, this has been working for this community and it could work with others. I mean, how far we've come with it so far has been awesome. But what you describe is this other sort of interesting network effect that emerges from this. It's just like, positive some game among the apps within this ecosystem. Hey, if I'm off using WhatsApp to communicate, that's a loss for every other platform. We talk about like sort of monetary liquidity in the Web3 and crypto sense. This is conversational liquidity. It's like, or when I have a conversation in this context, that's being taken away by these other places. And so the beauty of something like XMTP is that you could be a developer in some other far reaching corner wanting to send messages to somebody and you may not necessarily have access to a lot of those people in your interface yet well that's okay because they're there somewhere there's a touch point somewhere where they're seeing those messages and every new participant of the ecosystem a user a dap a wallet adds to this positive sum effect and mm -hmm. makes sure that Users can communicate with each other. DApps can communicate with users. It's a really special thing that we can start to see emerge from it already. I don't know if you started with Lens, but Lens seems to be the biggest that is most well-known that's using XMTP anyway, which makes complete sense. It's a social platform or the clients on top of Lens are social platforms. So in normal internet, right? In web two, they all have DMs, Instagram, everything. Mm. You, can, you can always DM in there. So it's the ideal fit. I'm curious, like when you think of where communication goes in web three is it mainly in social apps do we start you mentioned a bunch of times like OpenSea potentially and like marketplaces yeah. things like that do we start now having conversations in our marketplaces does everything almost become like a social platform or just a means of communication is it in the wallets like where do you think that we start to communicate the most now as the internet sort of changes as we adopt Web3? It's an awesome question. And I could bore you to tears with the number of use cases that we could probably work our <laughs> way through. I'll kind of, I'll hone in on just a couple. And, and the reason I'll do that is because there's a few examples where, okay, yeah, we communicate on the internet today. Maybe we can even put a little link to our Ethereum addresses on some of these apps, like a Discord or something like that. But what does it mean for those communications to be explicitly tied to and say provided by your Ethereum account, not just a link or something like that. And so one example would be like support, where today support in Web3 is just downright scary, where if you try to say anything on Twitter, you're going to get replies from all these bots with all these phishing links. The moment that you log into a Discord, the first thing is, is the bot of the server reaches out to you and says, we're never going to DM you. It's like, <laughs> we're just setting people up for failure left and right. And the reality is like, some people need help sometimes. I mean, I've certainly been confused about certain things. And, you know, God forbid, then they go to Google where there's been AdWords that have been bought against, you know, some common things to then try and rug you. So everywhere you turn, it's just these landmines to walk around. And it's not something that I think is going to bring that next billion users in. And so mm -hmm. something as boring as a support address, you know, like when you write in at support at worldofwarcraft.com or whatever it is that you might reach somebody on the other end, that's going to be really helpful. And in this space, what's neat about it is, you know, like last week, we just launched our grants program and how to submit to it is through grants.xmtp.eth. And you send a message through any way that you can get to us over XMTP. What's beautiful about that is 
as an end user, I can go inspect that. I can go over to ENS. I mean, it's all composable, but I can go over to ENS. I can look at the Block Explorer. I can see, okay, when was that subdomain created? What wallet mm -hmm. is the controller of that? If I can trust the root domain of xmtp.eth, then I can trust you know, any of the subsequent domains that are created from there, all the subdomains and things. And we can envision this world where, you know, support.whatever.eth becomes a more common convention and that we're turning on our DMs as opposed to turning them off in some of these tools. That's going to be an important, valuable one. And not just support, but like a collector wanting to stay in touch with the creators that they're supporting, either for whatever the next big drop is going to be, or maybe there's something special that a creator wants to do with, you know, longtime supporters. All the on-chain data makes this so interesting because you don't even have to have it based on who owns what assets today. You could be like, hey, I want to get in touch with all the people that owned CryptoPunks at this block from two mm -hmm. years ago. And you could do that because the blockchain itself is kind of like the phone book. And it's just that we've now kind of brought the phone to the table. And rounding it out, it's like you describe the, the marketplace example. Well, I can't tell you how many times I bought something on eBay and didn't message the seller weird questions, random questions. Hey, does it have this one thing? Or is it this one model year that had this old weird chip in it? I actually did that once for a guitar pedal. <laughs> it's like super weird thing. But no, I needed to know, did it have that one piece in it? And imagine that happening today, where the level of ridiculousness that we have to do today to make that work, like literally minting a new ENS name that uses all of the characters to say, does it have the Panasonic's 40, you know, 96 <laughs> chip in it dot ETH and then minting that to whoever is selling that thing so that hopefully they're getting some alert that says you've got a new NFT and look at that. It's just, come on. It's frustrating. But everywhere we turn, all we have to consider is that Communication is such a core primitive to the way that we have done things on the internet since the beginning of the internet. Web3 doesn't have that in any sort of meaningful way today. And so we're trying to solve for that problem. What does that mean in 10 years after this technology exists? Well, it means that Web3 is more accessible to more people. It's more friendly to more people. It can be more trustworthy because you can know verifiably who you're talking to. And it can mean that any one app can't rug us of that experience because we can just kind of pick up our toys and move over to the next playground. So it, it sounds like XMTP is combining, let's say, all of your DMs, your SMS, your intercom, which is like your support for any application, all means of communication, all goes into one protocol and can work with every application on the internet. That's the future of this whole thing, which is amazing, number one, so super cool. <laughs> number two, what this makes me think of is how the heck are we going to manage all of this, all of these messages and notifications in one spot? Like, I'm just trying to think of like, even just trying to manage your own Twitter DMs. You know, once you have yeah. a few thousand followers on Twitter, that's even hard to do. And now you're combining that with all my support tickets and my Uber yeah. Eats and my email and my whatever else. Is this this is a client side thing? This isn't an XMTP thing to figure out. I think it's probably on the client side or how do you think through that? Yeah, there's a lot that would be client side and client side assisted through all of these other kind of signals and client side partially because one of the reasons that spam control works the way that it does say at a Google is because the messages are sent in the clear. Like by the mm -hmm. time Google actually receives that message, they can read it and make a judgment call based on that. Well, 
in this protocol, you can't. And so before it gets delivered, the protocol is not making any determination about, oh, this said something about a prince right. in some far off land that's going to give you 100 ETH. <laughs> no, so instead, no that will largely come into the clients. But what's interesting about that is maybe we mentioned composability sometime prior. Now imagine that there's an application layer on top of the protocol that might do some things on your behalf, might even have some AI in there to know, hey, you know, if it looks like this, then maybe send it over here. But like as a user, you could authorize some of these additional tools and services to help you with whatever your experience is or whatever your optimal experience is going to be. But beyond that, naturally, this kind of thing will already happen. You know, if you think about just communication being woven in, then you land on a site and maybe that has XMTP built into it, but maybe those communications are more dialed to that experience and that's okay because then when you pop back over to some universal app now we have loads of wonderful on-chain data like tons of public data to call from to know how we might better categorize or certain kinds of information so it seems realistic to assume that we'll be able to sift through these inboxes a lot more effectively than before i can tell you that if that's not the case then it will be with every single ounce of my energy to find a way otherwise, because we were there before. I don't like that state as it is. And I don't want to sort of, you know, bring that back onto the world in a worse way. So I will certainly make it my effort to make sure that we have a very usable experience coming out of this as well. You mentioned earlier that this is a public good that you're building. And one of the things I find very interesting about public goods is the monetary side mm. of it. We're actually talking with Gitcoin right now about having them on the show to talk about this as well. You mentioned that you have investors. You mentioned that you have your own grants program. So you're obviously, you've got your own ecosystem that is supporting you with monetary side. But two questions here. One, how have you guys approached having the capital to have the resources in order to build XMTP yep. and the funding for that? And then What's the incentive for you, your team, these investors to participate in that? Totally. Well, so a couple things about public goods. A public is defined as something that is, like we said earlier, non-rivalrous or non-exclusive. So it's or non-excludable. Your participation in it isn't somehow making it harder for another person or that some authority can't just say, no, you can't have that air is a public good. This is kind of how it goes, but so is a park. There are extremes, right, where you imagine a park is a public good, but if the entire city descended on that park for one period of time, then yeah, it's a little bit harder to use. And that's where you start to enact certain things like, yeah, free and accessible and easy to use most of the time. But a couple of days a year, we're going to host a concert there where we'll put up a fence and people that are coming in will pay money to be a part of that. But at the end of that, we're going to tear the fence right back down and the public can use that, that space all over again. And so national security, law enforcement, roads, over-the-air broadcast television. Another great example where it's, mm -hmm. if I want to go buy an antenna for my TV, I can. And I can tune into the local NBC broadcast that's coming off of a radio tower somewhere else. And when I do that, it doesn't make it harder for anybody else to get that same signal. But somewhere, someone is paying for that. And it's happening because there's been advertisers that have put money into that particular station that are now then broadcasting that signal that I can then consume freely and paying for it in my attention. 
And so I think there's a misconception that public good just means that it's just this thing that's going to be free for everybody. But that inevitably leads to this problem of tragedy of the commons, where it's just like, you know, imagine that same concert use case where it's okay, great. It's free for everybody. Everybody can come. But then what kind of experience do you come into when you get there? And it's probably a crappy one. And so, you know, there will unquestionably be need to put in certain kinds of controls into the system to make sure that by and large, everybody has a great experience. And we want to make sure that that can be done in a way where it's not, say, expensive for personal use. Hopefully we get as close to free as possible. But it's the use by some of those business use cases that help to maybe offset costs or whatnot. So a token would inevitably be involved. And the beauty of a token in this case is it works a little bit more like a public utility where it's like, hey, there's a power plant somewhere out there and we're going to pay the power plant. And maybe some people are paying for greater usage, but largely, you know, we're getting service through that public utility. And in our case, the existence of the token will enable incentivization, disincentivization, and all of that. How the company and say investors fare is on one hand, there'll be some early portion of the token supply that would be set aside. And I know this is a big debate, but I will also say that this is the kind of project that requires an intense amount of coordination that could happen organically, but would take a really long bit of time, right? And to get that network effect, to reduce that chance of interaction failure requires an insane amount of concerted effort to make it happen. And so to have some reward at the end of the day for having put in considerable time, effort, money, and all those things, I think is a fine exchange. At the end of the day, we still have to make the dang thing valuable. All the participants, the investors, the project, every app that comes into this ecosystem. And so for us, this is not some, you know, turn the thing on and all of a sudden everybody's doing great kind of thing. It's going to be a whole lot of work all the way through. It's a great explanation. And I'm, by the way, on the camp. And I hate that so many people get so upset about business models and people charging for a technology. And it's like, yeah, if not charging, then we're selling your data for ads, your choice. You know <laughs> what I right. mean? But That's right. since the beginning of the internet, we've always sold our data for ads. And it's you hate that. Yet then you also hate paying for a membership or a tier or for a product. These right. things will not exist if you don't pay for them. Or even if they do exist, maybe like you said, the like perfect combination of everyone coming together happens and it all of a sudden, poof, we have XMTP. Well, XMTP is going to have to probably improve over time. And how do you do that? It doesn't happen if there's no incentive. And so I hate that whenever we ask this question, the entrepreneurs or those that are running these companies, they almost get nervous that they have to explain the way that they're going to monetize. And it's like, we need to like change that mindset of most internet users because it's like, you're either getting ads or we've got to find a way to monetize this. And so it's up to you, which one do you want, right? So I appreciate the answer. I think it's really great. And so I guess just to take that a little bit further and just a question on that, let's say you turn on, you know, some paid levels or something for whatever that is, but there's going to be, from what I'm imagining anyway, there's going to be a bunch of people who are working on XMTP and are running servers who will be involved in this token. So does the revenue model then go to a treasury or something? And then maybe all the token holders then now get a share of that revenue or they now vote on 
where that revenue should be placed to improve XMTP, like the protocol itself, or, and I know maybe you're too far out for that to happen. I'm just curious, does that turn into a DAO of some sort? We're a little ways out from some of those having definitive answers. There's a couple of things that I can at least draw us into though, which is there's a couple of models that we can look out to, one of which is ENS, where there's actual revenue coming in from the protocol and heading straight into a foundation. And then the treasury is managed by the DAO. And then the DAO decides through governance voting where that treasury is being dispersed out to. That is one model. In the case of something like XMTP, that may be possible for certain activities in the network and things like that. Imagine if there's maybe some direct revenue that can exist. But if you're talking about just sort of base use of the experience, look at the complete far other end of the spectrum and you get to something like ethereum where the day-to-day work being performed by the validators comes with a a block reward and that is based proportionally to the say stake that you have put up in the system and so you are doing work and you're getting rewarded for that work and so in this case you know i see it as that could be the other end of that same coin that other end of the spectrum and in that world, you know, there is no sort of place that Ethereum is sending all of its tokens to whenever somebody sends a transaction. It's burnt now after EIP 1559. Like that's just straight up burnt. But even in that, you're paying for it because mm-hmm. when you mint new tokens, that increases the supply. That's inflation. Mm-hmm. When you remove tokens through burning, that's deflation of the system. And so if you think about sustaining something long term, if those things can net out, then that's interesting because essentially what's happening then is the entire network is getting subsidized through the entire network's use. All of the transactions coming in, you know, they're not all paying into some sort of pool to keep Ethereum going. They're just doing that intrinsically through their activity in the network. And then it's just the activity of the network that's the balancing effect of it all it's a homeostasis of the network that's right it's an economic homeostasis i think that's interesting too and so somewhere in between those two ends of the spectrum is going to net out a model that's going to look appropriate for our particular use case and hopefully it's a responsibility that xmtp labs can very quickly abscond from to put that responsibility onto a community at large or delegates or whatnot feels like the right thing to do so as quickly as we can get to that state i think we'll be in a better place right like how to sustain public goods is such a big unlock of web3 right i think like you said with ethereum like Tokens allow us to create these sort of economic engines that can sustain themselves and you don't actually need a revenue going to certain people. And so I think we still don't know the perfect way of that yet. Ethereum obviously being the leader and experimenting with that. But anyway, thank you for answering all those questions and sort of like diving into what's possible because I think there's many out there who are listening who may want to build a public good. And a lot of people, I think, don't because they're like, well, how do I make any money from it, right? Mm -hmm. How am I, what's my incentive model? And so- Right. It's nice to hear like other options and ways that you can actually build this and be sustainable for you, your business and and the protocol itself. So really cool. Yeah. Happy to chime in on it. And I don't claim to know all the answers. Like I'm a student no. of this space by anything. It's like I think the most important thing that we can do, you know, being participants in this space is to remain curious. Way too many of us think that the answers are all there or that they have all the answers and whatnot. And that's how you get into trouble. Right.
I'm going to let you finish up with any additional things you want to mention about XMTP, if, whether it's like where developers can go to build, maybe there's new things you guys are launching or just anything you want to update. Before I do that, I'm going to do a quick show for myself. Those that are listening, if you're interested in trying to understand how tokens can sort of drive this sort of economic engine of networks, I recently did a report in Web3 Academy Pro, and it talks all about the dynamics of ETH and its tokenomics and explains all of this and kind of gives some insight into how other protocols can do it. Just something I'm super interested in. But anyway, if you guys are interested, check out Web3 Academy Pro and go to that report because it'll kind of get you up to speed on all this stuff. But let's hear what's going on with XMTP. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you want to make sure that our listeners hear? Yeah, so xmtp.org is a great place to check out where to get started as a developer and things like that. If you want to play around with it today, then if you have a Lens profile, jumping into Lenster or Orb or any of those, that's a great place to jump into. xmtp.chat is a place that you can go to just fire up your account and get started by sending messages. I highly encourage anybody that wants to send a message to say galligan.eth, which is my address, you can do so. RIP my inbox. And then from there, like on the socials, you know, on Twitter, we're XMTP underscore, which is a little annoying, but that's what we are. Same Uh, with Web3 Academy. There you go. There's so much that's happening. We really want to be champions of the developers that are building on top of the platform. And so on GitHub, we have that repo called Awesome XMTP. Highly recommend checking that out. We're just github.com slash XMTP. Yeah, just get involved. Will you guys be at ETH Denver? We will have a handful of folks at ETH Denver. Yeah. And a lot of the ETH global hackathons and we'll be generally around a lot of the major events through the rest of the year. I love it. Okay. Let's wrap up with a quick speed round. First question, Matt, what's an NFT you'll never sell? Oh man. Well, at this point, I feel like I am definitely diamond handing this guy back here. That's board ape. 3073. He's got heart glasses and a Hawaiian shirt and an orange beanie. And I've grown fond of it since minting it way back when. So, so far, haven't sold it, which I feel like it's saying <laughs> something. So hopefully we can diamond hand him for a while longer. That's quite right. I've... You've held that thing through. It's been a tough one. Let me tell you. He I've been very lucky so... that the keys have been out of my hands for yeah. some, like, <laughs> right. you know, cold wallet. Like, it was like, ooh, in the scary days. Favorite AI or Web3 tool to increase productivity or tool that's had an impact on you? Really, just ChatGPT has been awesome. You know, using it to pair program or even learn how to program has been awesome because so much about learning how to program is being able to relate to the thing that you're doing. I've had a really big challenge in learning how to program my entire life. I could never quite get over that hump in just reading books or watching tutorials. It was when I could come to ChatGPT and say, hey, this is a thing that I want it to do. Here's the logic that I know it needs to happen in. And then it spits out the code and I can work my way back through it, like reading another language or reading a book and saying, mm-hmm. oh, I get it. I see the workflow. And it's been awesome to use as like a pair programming buddy. I've loved that. I love that concept. I was talking to a friend who is using it as a pair journaling buddy with his therapy. And he was telling me same concept, right? Of pairing chat GPD to Amazing. be your sounding board. And I think that concept has so much application to so many different things that we're trying to learn. Totally. We should try and do an episode where ChatGPT throws out all of the questions the whole time that we're interviewing. (laughs) Pair podcasting. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, last question. If you had a billboard that 1 billion people were going to see, what would you write on it? Hmm. It's okay to not have all the answers. Mm, Nice. I like that. Like, we have to be totally okay with asking questions. We have to be totally okay with leading from a place of vulnerability and being like, listen, I don't know. 
but I'm committed to it. I want to learn from it. I want to learn from other people and other people's experiences. Because I think where we get into trouble and certainly where I have gotten in trouble in my experience in my life has been being the know-it-all or acting like I have all the answers and there's no wisdom gained from that. So it's okay to not have all the answers. I don't know, maybe sometime in a pr past life, if I saw that billboard, it might've jogged me a little bit. It's incredibly courageous to have that view. I love that. I hope more people, whether it be building a Web3 or whether any part of life, that view can really lead to unlimited possibilities. All right, well, Matt, thanks so much for joining us today. This episode has been longer than I think any of us expected, but there was just so much to dive into. And I think we all three of us got pretty excited throughout. So really appreciate the time. Appreciate what you guys are doing over at XMTP. Shout out to the whole team. Hopefully I will catch you in person at ETH Denver, one of the hackathons coming up. Thanks so much. It was really fun. Thank you for listening to Web3 Academy. We hope this helps you along your Web3 journey. If it does, please share this episode and subscribe so you don't miss the next one. Nothing in this podcast was financial advice. Crypto and Web3 can be risky. You can literally lose it all. In fact, if you invest on account of what we say, you probably will lose it all. So don't do that. In all honesty, the point of this podcast is to remove the noise of markets and price and focus on utility and implementation anyway. So you should not take any of this as financial advice. Thank you, friends, and see you in the next one.